Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, and Galatians 5, 16 through 26. It says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they are righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like, the, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this Sunday morning. I uh, pray that you would speak through Ryan, Lord, and uh, that we would have the hearts and ears um, just to listen to what you have to say to us this morning. We love you. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling For the City, and this series is unique because this is basically a revamping and a refocusing of the values of our church. The values of our church that we as an elder team and a staff team and as a leadership team have, have really sifted through and sought to clarify and crystallize not only what we think we want to be, but what it feels like to be New City. And those values are humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit in the city for the city, reconciled and reconciling, planted and planting. And what they describe is continuums that we function on under the, the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's what we want to be doing as a church. And so last week we talked about this idea of being in the city for the city. And we talked about the significance of place in our lives and how God has made Christians the salt of the earth and how we're supposed to invest in, in our lives, in the lives of those in our city. And today we're, we're talking about really the one that everything hinges on in our values. Humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit. So, um, so I had the opportunity to hang out with some neighbors a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so there were, there, were, there were three or four other couples and myself. Megan uh, had a girls' night out and was hanging out with some of her friends. And so I brought the kids over and we were getting ready to have dinner, and this new couple had just moved into the neighborhood, and they were from Brooklyn, or should I say Brooklyn? You know, they're from Brooklyn, and so they're from New York, and they've come down, they lived in, in Brooklyn their whole lives, and uh, they'd lived uh, here for maybe three months or so, and, uh, and so Tessa, one of our neighbors who's been there for a little bit, said, hey, I've got an idea, let's just kind of go around the circle, and, and everybody can just tell us a little bit about your family, and then you can also tell us what you do vocationally for a living. 
And, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. I wonder how this is going to go. And, <laughs> and, so, and so we go, you know, I, I work at AT&T. You know, I'm an engineer. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm this. I'm that. And then the game comes on. I'm like, all right, this is awesome. Great. We're going to go watch the game now. But then Tessa comes back. She goes, no, 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 Ryan, you need to tell them what you do. And I'm thinking, okay. And I say, hey, MJ, I'm Ryan. I have four kids. You see them. You hear them right now. And I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, he takes his beverage and he puts it behind his back and he says, I am so sorry for my language. I mean, it's like 75% of the time that's what happens. What is it about the culture that Christians have created and perpetuated, and particularly in the South, that says, hey, there's a religious God, therefore I shouldn't be honest about who I am. You know what I'm talking about? It's not just me being a pastor It's kind of, that has a polarizing kind of intro, but, it, but it's you as a Christian as well. You meet someone in your workplace and they find out you're uh, a believer and all of a sudden they think they ought to live a certain way around you or not be honest about who they really are around you. We see it every single day. And I just don't know what it is about the culture that we've created that says, hey, I shouldn't be honest around this person. I shouldn't be who I am. I should be someone different. And that, that's why we're putting this in our values as a church. Because it is, and I would describe it as a type of moralism uh, that has run so rampant in our culture for such a significant season of time that there is like this haze over our city, over our communities, that says Christians aren't really honest and so I shouldn't be honest about who I am. Like their God can't handle who I am. Or they've lived kind of this double life kind of thing. It's we've said, you know, we're just going to call it what it is and we're going to go after this with everything in us because uh, the way of Jesus has to be better news than this, right? It has to be better news than I have to change myself to be a friend of yours. Or I can't be who I really am around you. The gospel has to be better news than that, and it is. And so I was thinking with, with the elders, we were coming up with this, this, this language about, you know, what are we really going after here as a, as a church? And we, we kind of landed on the word humbled, but really, let me tell you what, um, what we're really going after here. It's, um, let me get over here real quick. This will be good. Here's what we're really saying about what, what this is. Wrecked by grace and depending on the Spirit. That's what we're really saying with this word, with this value right here, that grace ought to do something in your lives that absolutely wrecks you when you meet Jesus. That you see all of the, the other deeds and accomplishments that you have in your life as something that pale in comparison to the greatness of knowing Jesus. That it absolutely wrecks our moralism, our, our attempts to get to God with our own efforts. That it wrecks us. And so the big idea of where we're going today is you've got it. We are humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit. So if you've got a Bible, let's open up to, to Luke chapter 18. I just have two points today. The first one is this. Humbled by grace. Humbled by grace. Luke chapter 18 um, is where we're going to be to start out today. And this, this is a parable that Jesus tells um, about the, the nature of what grace does in someone's life. And I, I don't think there's anywhere else in the Bible that describes this posture better. And I'm going to read it just again real quick for us. I know you've heard it once, but just, just listen. Let it wash over you. 
Scripture say this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee uh, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like this other, I'm not like other men. Uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, this tax collector, this other guy that's over here. Um, I, I fast twice a week. It's, it's far more than what you ask. And I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man, the sinner. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable, what it, what it teaches us, what it shows us about the nature of God's grace in our life is it shows us the profile of a person that can actually be used in God's kingdom. And, and it's antithetical to what we think that it is. It's what it's actually like to be used by Jesus because he kind of paints these two pictures, these two different approaches to God. Uh, and really the heart of what, what's at the center of it is what motivates you for living in God's kingdom. What motivates you? Uh, and so there's kind of this preface that he says before he describes the two different types of guys. He says, you know, to those who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. And so then he begins to share this. So let's look at the Pharisee. I, I, when we read this, we typically vilify the Pharisee. We even change the way that we talk about it, right? We, talk, we, 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 we have a little voice that we use when the Pharisee talks, but here's the deal. Um, we think this guy's a deplorable man, but, but I don't think we need to make a straw man Pharisee. I think this Pharisee is someone that we would love to have at New City Church from the outside. Wouldn't we love to have a guy that, that has a great family uh, that lives generously, that serves on the setup team. <laughs> you guys are supposed to laugh. You guys are kind of bad this morning. Um, we'd, we'd love to have a guy like this that, that gives it the top tier of the For the City initiative. We'd love to have a family like that that looks the part. But there's this subtle hint at where the power for his living comes from as we read this. There's really nothing wrong with the way the guy prays. He's thankful for God's work in his life as he prays. But here's the, here's, the, here's the catch, is that he's learned to size up his relationship with God by looking across the aisle instead of looking at the cross. But by looking at others, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I thank you, God, that I'm not even like this tax collector over here. This guy that's visibly broken and got it all wrong. I thank you that I'm not like him because I could be like him. Maybe he even thinks that. He says, I thank you that I'm not like him. And my heart breaks for this guy because somewhere deep inside of me is that same Pharisee. And somewhere deep inside of you is that same Pharisee. So my question to you as we think about the Pharisee is this. When your soul is troubled, and you're trying to justify yourself, where do you run to? Where do you run to? 
Do you, do you run to this comparison like the Pharisee does? It says, hey, at least I'm not like that guy. Do you look at others and compare yourself and try to size yourself up? Do you run to some other type of codependency? Do you, do you run to someone else or do you run to Jesus? Because we kind of make we have a magnetic pull to run to anything other than Jesus when it comes to our souls being troubled. And I'm not sure why that is other than the fact that we have sinful tendencies. But what brings you comfort in those moments? What soothes your soul when you struggle with that? If it's anything other than the comfort of a sinless man being crucified and murdered on your behalf and raising from the dead, then it's not real comfort. It's temporary. It's a band-aid. Now on the other side of this, we have this tax collector. And, and, and if you're not familiar with this story in the Scriptures, a, a tax collector was a guy that basically was a, 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 a legal thief. He was a robber. He would basically go and, and the government would say, hey, we've got to get this, this amount of taxes for, you know, from this family. And he would go and he would say, okay, you've got to give me that plus X. And they wouldn't know what amount they were supposed to give. And so they would give him the full amount because if not, he could just throw them in jail. He could take things from them. It's a, he, he earned his living from stealing from other people. And so the guy, I mean, he's just not real well liked culturally. People see him and they just think, ah, yeah, that guy's kind of dirty. Right? And so, so we've established that the, the Pharisee's a good dude, but what makes him a man to be pitied is not what's on the outside of his life, but it's what's on the inside of his life. That's what's broken with the Pharisee. It's, it's what's on the inside is what Jesus is saying. But with the tax collector, it's what's on the outside of his life, his behavior, the things that he's done in his life that make him a man to be pitied. So Jesus uh, is saying that this tax collector is the one who goes down to the house justified. Now, now, why is he the one that goes down to the house justified? Because he's the guy that's not looking across the aisle trying to justify himself. Instead, he's looking at God. He's looking, he, he beats his breast, he can't even lift up his head to heaven because he knows who he is. He knows who he is before God. Now, now here's the deal. Here's the thing that I don't want you to miss about this story. The man also goes down to his house justified because he was honest before God. He was honest about the condition of his heart. He was honest about his brokenness before God. Now, if, if not for Jesus, the brokenness is just brokenness and we have no hope. But because Jesus actually came to seek and save the lost, he actually came for those that were sick, as Mark would tell us. He, he, because Jesus comes for people like that, we can be honest about who we are in front of him. We can be honest about who we are before him, because we are all tax collectors that have a propensity to dress up as Pharisees. We've all got our masks and our costumes. And we strongly believe as a church that the pathway forward for us is to not only tolerate brokenness when things get really bad and messy, but to celebrate it. Now, there's a difference between doing those two things, isn't there? Between tolerating brokenness and celebrating it. I was at Singapore this past summer. Uh, for s some studies, and we visited a church there called Covenant uh, Church uh, in Singapore, and one of their values, this is a church of like 8,000 people, it is a huge church, one of their values is brokenness. And I got to tell you, when I read that, I just kind of paused. It just kind of stopped me in my tracks. Because a church that celebrates brokenness kind of does that to you, doesn't it? 
It's countercultural. Now, they didn't celebrate brokenness for brokenness sake, but th- what they wanted to see done in their church and what they described in their values is a place where sinners can feel safe in their condition. And that's not every church around here. That's not every church in our city. And so we think that God is calling us to this. I mean, you think about the story of the uh, Apostle Paul whenever he, he has this, what he calls this thorn in his flesh. We don't really know what it is, if it's an illness, if it's a, a sinful desire. We don't really know what is going on in his life, but he, say, he pleads three times. He says, God, please take this away from me. I could serve your kingdom better if I wasn't so broken. That's what he's saying. God, I could do your work. I could plant churches. I could preach better if I wasn't so broken myself. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. It's sufficient. It's all you need. My grace is sufficient for you. Because here's the deal, Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. So then Paul writes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Boasting in weakness. That's what we're going after here. We're going after 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. That's what we have to do as a church to have the power of God upon our lives according to what Jesus says here in 2 Corinthians. But most of the time when we approach God, we approach God just like Paul does. God, I want to have it together so that I can serve you. Would you help me have it together a little bit more than I do right now? And Jesus meets us and He says, hey, you don't know what you're asking for. You want the power of God in your life, but you don't want to be broken and there's no way to have those two together. You have to be broken if the power of God is going to be displayed in your life. And the good news is is that we're all broken, so we all have the opportunity to have the power of God displayed through our lives. Jesus says to each of us, Ryan, I want to display my power through your weakness. Mike, I want to display my power through your weakness. Phyllis, I want to display my power through your weakness. David, I want to display my power through your weakness. Lauren, I want to display my power through your weakness. And all we try to do is run away from it. Church, he wants to display his power through our weakness. So how do we get this culture at our church? I think we have glimpses of it. But I think God wants to take us deeper. I want you to hear this quote from a book called Grace in Practice by Paul Zoff. He says this, Grace, at the origin of romantic love, which is the entry point for the hopes of marriage, is related to the concept of intimacy. Intimacy is a word that can make you wince. It is used in sentimental settings and it is sometimes deployed to describe relationships that are unworthy of the word. But it actually means something important. Intimacy is when I know someone else as they really are. It's when I know someone inwardly and not just outwardly. Christ was uninterested in knowing human beings from the outside in. 
Think about this story. Who did he value here? Who, who went down to the house justified? The guy, that's, the, the guy that he saw his actions or the guy that he knew his heart? He was only interested in people from the out, inside out. He pulled away from people who looked like whitewashed tombs, but whose insides were filled with the bones of the dead. This is an allusion to Matthew 23. Intimacy is the opposite of the whitewashed tomb. It is seeing into the core of a person while not being repelled by what you see. That last line is like a knife twisted in your heart, isn't it? It is seeing into the core of someone and not being repelled by what you see. On the cross, Jesus looks down and He says, God, they're not even trying to follow you. I'm going to get off this thing, right? No, he looks into the core of those who were crucifying him. They were the same people seven days before who were saying, Hosanna in the highest. Seven days later, crucify him, crucify him. And that's the continuum we run in on our hearts as well. We go from Hosanna in the highest to crucify him in a matter of seconds. And Jesus, church, I want you to hear this, is not repelled by what He's seen in our hearts. That's why, we're, that's why we're not honest. It's because we think that if He knew what we were really thinking about so-and-so or about that sin or about what we're going to do next, that He'd be repelled by what He'd see. But the problem is when we're not honest about who we are, we're only hurting ourselves. And so, as a church... We want to value this because we don't have to hide anymore. And do you know that your friends and your neighbors are longing to hear about a God like that? What would it look like for us to be a little more okay with our brokenness because we were a little bit more entrenched with the Gospel? This is a place where sinners can be safely loved. That's where we want to be. So this is one side of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, if you stop here, you jump into this licentious lifestyle where you say that, that, that the obedience that, God, that Jesus calls us to is unnecessary. Now, it's not what we're saying at all. We're just saying that there's another way to be obedient. There's another trajectory that Jesus has us on. And it's not like this perfectly ascending trajectory to holiness. That's not what it looks like. It looks like a ton of brokenness in the midst of it. But because God is with us and He doesn't leave us, we can trust Him. So the second part of this is this. We, we are depending on the Spirit. So we're humbled by grace, we're wrecked by grace, and we're depending on the Spirit. So, so part one of this is that Jesus sets us free. He sets tax collectors free. He sets sinners free. Whether you know how sinful you are or not, He sets you free. If you'll be honest about where you're at. The second thing that He does is He fills you with His Spirit. He sets us free from sin and He fills us with His Spirit. Um, and this, this passage that I want to look at um, is Galatians chapter 5. Because a life that's been broken by grace is a life that, that seeks to stay humble and broken. And, and we do that really ultimately by seeing who we are. So, I want to give you the, this image. I want to read Galatians 5 first. And I want to give you the image of two trees. 
And if you were in our um, discipleship training, you got to see a little bit of this in there. So let me read Galatians 5 for us. This is, this is Paul writing to a church in Galatia that's really struggling with the role of obedience and works in their life in Jesus' grace. The same place we find ourselves today. He says this, but I say walk by the Spirit. He's talking about freedom. You're submitting to freedom and not this yoke of slavery of keeping the law. This is what he writes about. He says, I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. So there's this war inside of us is what he's saying. This Spirit-filled heart, but this this, this flesh-centered life. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he goes through this laundry list of things that I would say is not an exhaustive list. It probably hit on some of the things that were most prevalent in Galatia, but we could add to the list today. We could add to the list because the works of the flesh are endless. As Romans 1 says, we invent new ways to sin. That's what our hearts do, apart from Jesus. But then he makes this turn. And he says, but. <laughs> but the fruit of the Spirit is love. So you get this picture of the works of the flesh. So what I bring to God, works of the flesh. But then there's this other side of it when you're filled with the Spirit that is the fruit of the Spirit. So works of the flesh are what we create, what we do. Fruit of the Spirit is a byproduct of being filled with God. It's a byproduct of knowing you're broken and trusting Jesus. He says, I'm going to produce something in your life. You're not going to be able to produce it on your own. I'm going to produce something in your life that's lasting. And he goes on to tell us what that's like. It's love. It's, 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 it's joy. Some of us haven't had, ever had joy. He wants to produce that in us. It's, it's peace. I'm no longer filled with wrath and anger. It's, it's, it's patience. It's being understanding with people who take a little bit longer to get it. It's kindness. It's assuming the best about other people even though they're going to hurt you. It's, it's goodness. It's, 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 it's faithfulness. It's staying in each other's lives even when we hurt one another. Faithfulness. It's, it's gentle. Even though we might have hard and difficult things to say with each other, we don't run away, but we enter in gently because we know that the Holy Spirit is working through us. And it's self-control. He says, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. They've put the flesh to death, that old way of living to death. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. He wants to do something more lasting through our lives, church. He wants to produce fruit in us. Fruit that is lasting. So, how do we depend on the Holy Spirit? Let's throw those two trees up there. So, um, this is a lot of, this is a busy slide here, but it, it's good stuff. So, basically on the left side of the slide, we've got Works of the flesh. This is all the stuff in Galatians 5. We could, add, we could add our own stuff in there since we've been inventing sin since then, since it's written. 
And on the other side of it, we've got the fruit of the Spirit, the things that God does in us. Now, the typical way that we think about getting from the tree on the left to the tree on the right is just kind of climbing up in the tree, putting a rope on there, and swinging across to the other tree, right? That's what behavior modification is. It's when I say, I don't like what I'm seeing in myself here, so I'm going to do everything I can to get to that behavior over there because that's more acceptable to God. That's more acceptable for me. That's more acceptable for others. And so we just try to jump into the other tree. We just try to do it on our own. We just make a running leap, and I'm going to have self-control this time. And it doesn't work. It's not lasting because we don't have the power in and of ourselves to get there. We don't. That's why it's fruit of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's a byproduct of what God does in us. So, so I think there's really three things that, 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 that we do and God does to help us keep in step with the Spirit and get the product of our life that we want to see, which is the fruit of the Spirit, all of those beautiful things. The first thing is this, is, is confession. So what is confession? It's, it's casting away sin. It's, it, it's, it's seeing yourself before God honestly in the context and community with other people. Because James tells us that if we confess our sins to one another, that we experience healing. Which leads us to think that if we don't do that, maybe we're not quite as healed as we could be. Right? So here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 32 about uh, casting away sin. He says this, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whom, whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he says, For when I kept silent, I didn't confess my sin, he's saying. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I just kept it to myself. I just tried to jump to the other tree. I just tried to figure it out on my own. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of October 6th. It was hot yesterday, wasn't it? I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. He was spiritually naked before God, is what he's saying. I just, I took off all the pretense. And he said, you know, I think it's time I'll be honest with God. I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And so God took out a big paddle and just beat him with it, didn't he? No. What does it say that he did? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We think that when we come before God and we, and we come honestly before Him, that there's punishment waiting for us. And that's when we circumvent the work of the cross because the punishment has already been addressed by Jesus. When we fail to live honestly and confess our sin, what we're saying is, I don't really need the cross. I don't really need it. I got this, God. I don't need the work that You've given to me. I don't need that. I'm strong on my own. And what Paul noticed, and what Jesus led him through, is no, you're not, Paul, because I want to display my power through your weakness. Power for your soul, for your spirit, but also for others around you who see that you're not a, a man that's afraid to be weak. You're not a man that's afraid to say, I don't have it together. You're not a man that fears being known by others. That person is a strong person. That's what Jesus says. Casting. Casting our sin. 
confessing our sin, casting it away. You ever been fishing before? If you just think about back in the, the days that, that Jesus and his and his uh, disciples fished, they, they threw these big kind of nets out. They would throw them out, and they'd have to hold on to them so they could catch fish, right? No, they would have to let go of them. They would have to let go. If they never let go of the net, they could never catch any fish. But so many times, we just keep holding on to the net. We say confession is just keeping it to myself, and I'm going through the motions, but I'm never letting go of the net. And when you let go of the net, when you cast your cares on Him, when you cast your sin on Him, you feel the relief of no longer carrying the sin anymore. That's what confession is. It's actually letting go of your sin. It's, it's, it's casting it upon Jesus because you know that He cares for you. If you don't let go of your sin, you can't be a new creation in Christ. You'll always and only be, have that old identity. I'm just a broken sinner. I'm going to put on a pretty face though because I'm supposed to be strong. That's how we'll live. And that is slavery. That is not freedom. Are you still carrying the burden of your sin? Or has there been a release of casting that upon Jesus? Secondly, we, we, once we cast our sin upon Jesus, there's this repentance. Because if you just let go of your sin and you don't have any filling of God in your life, it's just going to be filled up with more sin. More of that broken and distorted identity in our life. Repentance, if, casting, if, if confession is casting sin to God, casting it off ourselves, casting it on God, repentance is turning back to God. Acts 3.19 uh, it talks about this lifestyle of repentance. Not just a one-time thing that you did when you walked down the aisle at your grandma's church when you were seven, but this lifestyle of repentance is expecting the need to turn back to God every single day. That there's something broken in me, and I'm going to have to keep on turning back to God because my flesh just wants to keep turning that way. W once you understand that that's really what it's like to live as a Christian, it makes it a whole lot easier to be broken before God and others. And so he says this, uh, Luke writes this, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn again. So if confession involves letting go, repenting means turning. When you see that you can turn to God even though you don't have it together, there's just a strong comfort. When you know that you can come back to God and you don't have to hide like, hey, here's what happened. Here's what, here's what. No, let me tell you. It's like my kids, right? Well, let me tell you what really happened. Let me tell you what she did. When you don't have to do that before God, there's just a sense of freedom. Hey, I know He's going to really love me. And I know He's not pleased with my sin, but He's pleased with who I am because He's pleased with His Son. His Son lives in me. That's a whole different way of thinking about sin and turning to Jesus. It's a whole different way. And when you begin to realize that, that Jesus, when He was on the cross, and the Father in Heaven sent Jesus to come down here and ultimately die a sinner's death so He can be raised to life, when you realize that what Romans 5.8 says, that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we had it together, but He died in the middle of it. You begin to realize that, okay, it's, it's a safe place for me to be a sinner in front of a holy God because Jesus loves me. What you begin to see is that Jesus has never given us what we deserve one time. Now, I don't know what your track record is with your friends, but there have been some times when I've given them what they deserve. You know what I'm talking about? 
you had it coming. You know, we say things like that under our breath, of course, because we're Southerners. But that's the way we think. That's the way we think about, you know, all that works of the flesh, you know. We give people what they deserve. Maybe not all the time, but, but Jesus has never done that one time to us. He's never done that one time. And so He says, come to Me. So we can cast off our sinful identity because it no longer is our identity. We are a new creation in Christ and we are beloved children because of what He's done for us. And Jesus would say this in Matthew 11, Come to Me. Don't run from Me. Come to Me. All who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden. This is what sin does to you. Is it weighs you down to the point where you can't walk, you can't sleep, you can't think, you can't eat. It weighs you down. He says, if you're there, come to Me. And I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. That's the language of... It's agricultural language, but they would put a yoke on two oxen and it would pull a sled or a plow or something like that. And that yoke would, would, would ultimately tie the, the stronger you know, animal to the weaker animal and they would ultimately kind of do the same thing because they were yoked together. He's saying, look, you get to take my yoke upon you. I'm pulling all the weight here, but you get to walk along with me. You get to be with me. He says, that's what it's like to walk in the kingdom. That's what it's like to be broken yet forgiven to be empty because of sin yet filled with the Spirit. That's what it's like to walk forward in the kingdom. And he says this, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not a pushover. He's just pulling all the weight for us, church. So you're going to let him pull the weight for you or you're going to keep trying on your own? That's the question. Repentance is turning back and letting the burdens fall off. Are you heavy today? Have you really cast the sin away? Have you really turned back to a father who will never leave you or forsake you? Have the burdens fallen off? And, and once you get to this place, once you get to this place, your life begins producing what you're always made to produce. Fruit. So confession is casting away sin. Repentance is turning to God. Thirdly, worship. Abiding in God. Abiding, that's a fancy word for staying, remaining. Remaining in God. So we've said, you know, the works of the flesh are what we produce with our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is what God produces through us. Through broken people who are willing to be used by God. John 15 is this, this passage that just is kind of an exposition of what this means to bear fruit. And he says this, Jesus says this to His disciples. He says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Whoever abides in Me, and I in Him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Everything inside of us wants to run from our abiding in Jesus. We want to plant our own orchards and be our own masters. And Jesus says the only way to be anything in this life is to die to yourself, be a broken sinner, and stay in my love. Stay in me. Keep coming back to me through confession. Keep coming back to me through repentance. And watch what I do through your life. You see, we think we know what's best for us. We have no idea. 
This is exactly what he tells Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul, you don't know what you're asking for. I want to do this like beautiful thing to give you strength to display my power. And you want to go do this like weak thing over here. You want to bench five pounds? I want to put 225 on you, baby. He wants to show his strength through our lives. The question is, will we stay in him? Staying in Jesus looks like you're aware of your brokenness and you're aware of a Savior that was broken to make you whole. That's what it means. So church, will we be humbled by grace, wrecked by grace, and will we depend on the Spirit to produce fruit that we could never do on our own? Will that be us? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for who You are and what You've done. Lord, I'm so thankful that You didn't look down on us and be repelled by what You saw. Disgusted by who we'd become. But Your motivation was love. You used to come toward us not run away from us. So Lord, in our deepest, darkest spots in our lives, would You help us to run to You? And Father, would we be the type of church that those people could come to? That those people could find healing? that those people could see grace. That those people could be used. Can that be us? That's going to be us. It starts with our own hearts. Would you break us? Would you wreck us with your grace more and more so that we're hopeless without your Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.